Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up next on Forum, the U.S. Supreme Court today blocked President Trump's attempt to dismantle DACA, the program that protects undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children from deportation and allowed them to work. In a 5-4 to four decision written by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court ruled that the Trump administration didn't follow the necessary procedures to end the program and didn't sufficiently weigh how ending the program would affect the recipients. The decision is seen by some as a major blow to Trump who promised in 2017 to end the Obama administration program despite its popularity with voters. We'll discuss the ruling and what could happen next for the 700,000 Dreamers. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In a rebuke to President Donald Trump, the Supreme Court of the United States issued a 5-4 to four ruling today upholding the legality of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Chief Justice John Roberts cast a decisive fifth vote and wrote in the opinion that the Department of Homeland Security's decision to rescind DACA was arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedure Act. The program allows immigrants who arrived in the country as children but don't have permanent legal status or a path to legal status to receive protection from deportation and permission to work. Since 2012, around 800,000 people have participated in DACA, working in what are now deemed essential jobs, helping feed the nation, caring for coronavirus patients, and serving in the military. The Obama-era program has been in limbo since 2017 when President Donald Trump announced he would end the program and called it illegal. The program, which some studies suggest is hugely popular with Americans, can now remain in place. And we discuss the decision and what it means for immigration reform, Joining us first is Dulce Garcia, a DACA recipient, named plaintiff in the DACA case, San Diego immigration attorney and director of Border Angels. And welcome, Dulce Garcia. Hello. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, I guess the first question to you is, how do you feel about this? Oh, my goodness. We're very excited. Uh, we're celebrating today. Today is a day to rejoice. A day to rejoice indeed. Uh, what was your expectation, though? Uh, I know you had hoped that this would be the ruling, but the expectation was what? Yes, well, we were, for the, since September 2017, we have lived with so much anxiety. And as the date drew closer uh, to a decision, it, it, it became almost unbearable. The idea that the Supreme Court would rule against us, uh, that we wouldn't see justice, uh, that the the president would get his way and then we would be deported. It was, um, it's terrifying. And so today it's, it's as if a big weight has been lifted off our shoulders. Although so you were really fearful. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, please. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead, yes. please. Uh, this isn't permanent protection from deportation, but at least for now, we know that we have DACA protection. And the sense was that the feeling of deportation, although some were considering that this would go back to Congress, that this would just, uh, not necessarily be resolved in any way in terms of deportation, but that was a palpable fear. Very real fear. We had heard from, from the president himself uh, from the very beginning with Jeff Sessions saying anyone that is undocumented in this country should be afraid. It was also um, the sentiment when the decision of DACA was announced. Uh, we have, personally, I myself have been to Congress several times trying to uh, ask for a protection such as a DREAM Act. And we know that that's in the House right now and the Senate refuses to put it to vote. 
So the idea that we that Congress would step up and protect us is not a, a real one to us. And deportation seems like it would be the next step had the Supreme Court not ruled in our favor today. It must be a real feeling of, of relief, though. I mean, the anxiety I know was great. And you and many other DACA recipients uh, must just feel unburdened. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this isn't the end for us. Uh, we are going to keep pushing for our path to citizenship, and not just for us, but for our families, our parents, and the 11 million that are undocumented in this country. Yeah, I know. In, in fact, in your case, uh, it was impossible to get any kind of financial aid after high school because of the DACA status, right? Don't say. Oh. Uh, let me... Uh... <laughs> See if we can bring Dulce Garcia back in here. And let me introduce the others who are going to be with us during this hour. Taiki Hendricks, a senior editor who covers immigration for KQED. Good morning, Taiki. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And also glad to have Deep Ula Sekarum, who is professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law, where he teaches constitutional and immigration law. He's also co-author of the Immigration Law Casebook, The New Immigration Federalism. Welcome back to the program. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. And we'll also welcome Jessica Vaughn, who's Director of Policy Studies with the Center for Immigration Studies. They're a Washington-based group that favors significant reductions in immigration. Jessica Vaughn, good morning. Welcome. I'm trying to hook up with Jessica Vaughn as well. Oh, uh, sorry. I was, I'm was. i here. Thank you. You are here. Okay. Yes. Welcome to the program. Good to have you. Thanks. Uh, let me begin with you, Professor Gula-Sekarum, uh, and let's begin by just outlining for listeners what was behind this decision, uh, I mean, what the legal question was and how it was resolved. Sure, so the, the case presented two legal questions. The first, whether the rescission of DACA, the decision to take it away could even be reviewed by a federal court. Second, if it could be reviewed, was it lawful? The first question the court answered, or five justices answered that it could be reviewed. And on the second question, again, five justices agreed that the rescinding of DACA in the manner in which this DHS did it was illegal. The, uh, the Administrative Procedure Act has a standard. That standard is that administrative action has to not be arbitrary or capricious. Five members of the court ruled that this particular way of rescinding DACA was arbitrary and capricious. And it would seem at this point that uh, Chief Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion uh, and who also was in favor of the opinion earlier this week with respect to transgender identity uh, and also in favor of the Affordable Care Act, is steering the court in a direction that certainly wouldn't have been expected for a conservative-leaning court or a conservative majority court. I think that, you know, that's that's one version of, of what's happening. I, I would emphasize that the DACA ruling here is narrow. As he starts off by saying in his opinion, everyone agrees that the DACA program could be rescinded. That is not at issue. It's only the manner in which it's, it's being done. Um, and so I think there is a narrowness to this opinion that, that while it's a very important decision, there's a narrow to, narrowness to it that we should be aware of. And Taiki, let me go to you on this. Taiki Hendricks, again, senior editor who covers immigration for KQED. What does this mean now? Let's talk about it from the perspective of all these essential workers who now can feel a great deal of relief, as we heard earlier uh, when we spoke to a DACA recipient. Uh, there is a sense of great relief here, but also what does it mean in terms of their future? Well, yeah, we have, um, of, of those about 650,000 people nationally who currently have DACA, um, more than one in four of them live in California and work in a, a wide range of professions from, from retail and agricultural work all the way up to, you know, being doctors and lawyers and teachers and bankers and, and uh, all kinds of roles in our society. I think the estimate is there are 29,000 DACA recipients working in healthcare professions around the country. So uh, in this pandemic time, obviously our Healthcare workers are, are really essential. Um, and these are also people who, you know, they're really, uh, like Dulce herself and, and, and others, um, folks who came to the U.S. Um, as children, I think the average age is maybe six-year-olds when they, when they got to the United States. So really, they're people who've grown up here, come of age here, and the United States is their home. And in every respect, and and in fact, a quarter of a million uh, are parents of U.S. citizen children. So, 
um, they're, they're folks who are really integrated into American society and very much in California society. And so um, this is a, a great reprieve for them. Um, and but but as uh, Deep and and Dulce have both said, it's it's not permanent. So I think what's going to be interesting is is seeing where this goes from here. Where do you think it might go? I mean, I'm not asking you necessarily to speculate here, but what's your what's your intuition and what does your sense tell you? Well, uh, you know, I believe what the court has done has basically said, you know, if if the Department of Homeland Security uh, did a more thorough job of, of addressing, you know, what the impacts of uh, ending DACA would be. They they could do that and and come back and and move to end it. Um, the the situation as we have it now, um, DACA is protected for people who have it, but um, since 2017, um, folks haven't been able to make new applications for DACA, so they're there may be, you know, three million people in the country who are in the same boat or, or what we think of as dreamers, folks who came to the U.S. undocumented as children. And so there's a much larger group um, who could benefit from something like a DREAM Act. And there is uh, a bill that passed the House last year, the, the Dream and Promise Act, that would provide green cards and a path to citizenship for for undocumented young people who came here as kids. I think so where this is going is uh, is really into the political realm, I would say. And uh, I've just been listening in on some organizing calls um, as immigrant advocates are thinking about next steps and really talking about uh, wanting to push for the Dream and Promise Act uh, and move into, you know, electoral organizing. We're in an election year and... Uh, and a sense that uh, this president and this administration and, and the Republican-controlled Senate have been the obstacles for them to seeing a more permanent path to, to integration into the United States as legal residents. And let me bring Jessica Vaughn into this. Jessica Vaughn is Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies. And uh, Jessica Vaughn, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas uh, came out with a dissent that said this was too much swayed by sympathy in politics, this decision, and also uh, said essentially it should have been Congress that decided this. Uh, you are in agreement with the justice, I presume? Yes, I do. This is fundamentally a political issue, this question of this group of people here illegally who arrived as kids. Um, and that's why I, I think that people should be careful in celebrating this decision because the practical result of it is that it is going to delay getting this before Congress where it belongs, or at least it could delay it. Now we're in an election year and uh, the president is likely to try to wind down the program again, uh, but also will be working with Congress to, because the president knows that it's only Congress that can provide a, an actual resolution of this issue. And that's appropriate. The Supreme Court said that the president has the authority to wind down DACA and implied that President Obama didn't have the authority to create DACA. So now it has to be kicked to Congress and they're, they are the ones that are gonna have to make a decision and that's the way our immigration system works. It's you know members of Congress who have the authority and, and can be accountable for our immigration policy. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. But uh, DACA was never intended to be any kind of permanent uh, resolution for the situation. It's caused a lot of problems. It set off a new wave of illegal immigration from Central America. Um, and inspired a lot of people to put their kids in the hands of smugglers and bring them here illegally. Um, it's, it's been uh, costly to taxpayers and, and needs to be resolved by Congress in a way that is not going to set off another new wave of illegal immigration in a way that's gonna be fair to taxpayers and in a way that is not going to really um, increase 
chain migration in a dramatic way. So th these are tough issues, but Congress is going to have to resolve them. And I think it remains to be seen whether they're going to be able to do that in an election year, um, particularly the Democrats. It'll be interesting to see if they really want to resolve this issue or if they're going to use the uh, DACA if, recipients as, as campaign props the way they have I, been. If I may, this is uh, Dulce, I'm back on the call. Um, in, in regards to those comments, I myself have been to Congress uh, in the last year and I have in preparation for the decision from the Supreme Court. As you know, I'm one of the litigants, but I also do this uh, lobbying work in Congress. And time and time again, every time we get there, and we speak to both, both, both sides of the aisle, it's been constantly the Republicans that keep asking for more in order to protect us DACA recipients, whether it's the wall, whether it's harming our families, cutting uh, lawful family migration, uh, referred to as chain migration, uh, whether it's ending the visa lottery or some other immigration policy, this administration and this president keeps adding on to this list of things that it wants in exchange for protection for- uh, Well, for respectfully, the president did. I'm sorry, for DACA recipients, this president didn't have to rescind DACA, whether President Obama had the right to create such a program or not, this president didn't have to rescind it in the way that it did and didn't have to put our lives in limbo the way that it did. Um, and so it is a moment for us to celebrate uh, today because it's been a long road to get to this point uh, it's been years and years of organizing of young people risking deportation, risking their livelihoods to even obtain DACA. And then we put our bodies, our, our selves on the line again by filing this lawsuit. I myself received death threats and constant harassment from Trump supporters. And uh, it's been a long time waiting for this, for this uh, resolution today. And although it's true that this isn't a permanent uh, solution. It is a day to celebrate today because we're going to keep asking for more. We're going to keep asking for a permanent solution, uh, eventually a path to citizenship, and not just for DACA recipients, but for our parents. I completely disagree that the DACA program created a wave of migrants and uh, it contributed in any way to uh, human trafficking or children being trafficked. Um, those are a direct consequence of the policies of this administration abroad, including its failure to admit uh, our, our play with um, climate migration. All right, Dulce, um, I'm going to come in here because I want to give out the number. I know there are many people who want to weigh in on this, and there are many people who have questions about it. So what do you think of the DACA program and the Supreme Court decision? And you can call us now. I invite you to join the program by calling us at our toll-free number. It's available to you. It's 866-733-6786. And you can have your say by joining us now at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And let me go back, if I may, to you. Uh, we'll go back just for a second to you, Professor Gula Sekarum, uh, and Deep Gula Sekarum, again, as Professor of Law at Santa Clara University. Help us sort through this in terms of uh, what's under the aegis of Congress as opposed to what's under the aegis of the Supreme Court. Sure, no problem. Um, before I get there, I just want to emphasize the last thing that Dulce said, that it is wild speculation with no empirical evidence that DACA has caused any form of unlawful migration or any of the other ills that Ms. Vaughn said. Um, but getting to your question, uh, Michael, Congress is the only body that can grant legal status. It's the only body through legislation in our government that can change somebody's status from unlawfully uh, present without legal status into lawful permanent residency or some other legal status. But Department of Homeland Security and the federal executive has control over how many people are prosecuted, how they're prosecuted, whether they're going to defer prosecution, and a whole host of other decisions that can allow people to end up staying in the United States. And so that's really the division. Nothing that happened today can grant legal status to people who are unlawfully present. Congress would have to move. And Ms. Vaughn might be right that, that, this, uh, that this decision changes incentives in ways that may not be um, great for Congress acting. It may. We, we don't really know the answer to that. Congress has had plenty of time to act and has not acted. Last year, the House passed the, uh, the American Dream and Promise Act. It did not get, obviously did not pass the Senate. That would have provided a pathway to regular status for, I think, close to 2.7 million unlawfully present persons. 
And don't forget, uh, President Trump actually offered uh, a a deal very early in his administration offering amnesty for 1.8 million DACA recipients and others, DACA eligible individuals, um, as part of a, a, a package and Congress did not act on that. He uh, Trump has always been willing to offer an amnesty, no, but I think it's also important just, to remember let, that let her make her point. Um, it is never it, it, deportation has never been deportation of people with DACA has never been the goal of this administration, as was erroneously oh, no. implied. Um, they've always said that it, that the problem is that DACA itself was an improper program, needed to be wound down, and that Congress needs to decide if and how to resolve the situation. Then put so, the Promise Act um, on and, the floor. And, and the reality and, is most people with DACA have never been at any great risk of deportation unless deported. they also were committing other no. crimes that would subject anyone here illegally to be All right, Jessica Vaughn, I think uh, Dulce Garcia has been trying to get in here. Dulce, go ahead. Yeah, no, that is absolutely, that proposal from Trump or any other um, DACA quick fix has been dead on arrival and as an undocumented person, as a DACA recipient, we wholeheartedly would rather remain undocumented than risk our own families here. And I would rather remain undocumented than agree to building a wall that has been a symbol of hate and created more death in our border. Um, and so that is absolutely wrong. If this president really wanted to offer a solution, they would put the Promise Act, Dream of Promise Act on the Senate floor and they haven't done so. If they were to do that, then we would hear how Americans actually feel because they would pass, but it hasn't. It's failed oh. time and time again to provide an actual solution to protect DACA recipients. And we have been getting deported. We have seen DACA recipients be deported when their DACA expires, we're put in a detention center and we're deported, not for crimes, for not having a valid DACA. We've got a caller on here who is a DACA recipient. I wanna uh, let him uh, express what's on his mind. Mario, join us, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going? I'm calling in from the Silicon Valley right now. Um, so I just wanna say uh, that it is a very good step forward and I am really happy. I mean, I, as a DACA recipient, I really don't know what this means yet, but overall, I believe that it's a good thing. I, we don't know what, what, it, what, it will, what the implication or impacts or, you know, but overall, it is a good thing. And I'm just really proud that during this political climate, we're moving in that direction. And uh, as a DACA recipient, I've been, I, I got DACA like the year that it came out, right? And I've been, I went to UC Davis, got an aerospace engineering degree. I can speak for a bunch of my uh, friends, you know, it, it's not, you don't, you don't get DACA by being a bad person. Like the, there's a really straight line you got to walk, right? And I just want to say that we are contributing to this country. We, most of us are very proud of this country, whatever, you know, whatever the political climate is. And we keep fighting and most of us protest by going to work and by paying our taxes. And right now we're contributing. We're, we're, not, we're not taking, at this point we're giving back and we will continue to give back. And that's gonna be our, at least that's my form of protest, to keep working, keep giving back, you know, pay my taxes. I, I, at, this, at, this, at this point we should be referring to DACA recipients as taxpayers, because most of them are paying taxes, right? All right, Mario, I thank you for that call. Uh, well, again, I asked the question of you, our listeners, what do you think of the DACA program and the Supreme Court decision? And you can let us know by calling us at our toll-free number now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the Supreme Court decision to uphold DACA with Taiki Hendricks, senior editor who covers immigration for KQED, and Deep Gulasekaram, who is a professor of law at Santa Clara University, and Jessica Vaughn, director of policy studies for the Center for Immigration Studies. What do you think of the DACA program and the Supreme Court decision? You can call us and let us know. 
Our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. Let me go, if I may, to you uh, once more, Jessica Vaughn. Let's find out again why you are concerned that there might be even more of a wave of migration here. That's been discounted by the professor and uh, others. What makes you so certain that that's likely? Well, because that's what our experience has been. Uh, The DACA program was implemented in August 2012, and soon thereafter, we saw a huge wave of unaccompanied minors and family units coming to the United States um, to take advantage of loopholes in our asylum processing system. And um, with the uh, understanding that, or belief, I should say, that if they were able to make it to this country, um, that they had reason to believe that Congress might eventually enact an amnesty that would cover their kids and, and that that was a motivation for trying to come at that particular time. Uh, All right. Uh, Jessica Vaughn, it's good to have you with us. I thank you for being with us. And again, Jessica Vaughn is Director of Policy Studies with the Center for Immigration Studies. They're a Washington-based group that favors significant reductions in immigration. Taiki, could I ask you, Taiki Hendricks, to address what you just heard? Well, um, I think the, the, the factors in, in migration are complicated, um, and there's, there's questions about causation and correlation, and, and uh, correlation is not always causation. Um, 80% of the DACA recipients uh, today, I think, are, are Mexican nationals. Uh, we've seen actually over the last um, decade really a, a strong drop in migration from Mexico, having to do with uh, changes in, in the Mexican economy and, and Mexican demographics. Uh, and then what we're seeing in terms of, of um, folks moving out of Central America and these, these three Northern Triangle countries is a, a lot of, of violence and sort of uh, collapse of, of sort of civic uh, integrity there that, that um, has has led to a lot of out-migration people coming and and seeking uh, asylum here. And I think it's maybe um, uh, sort of oversimplifying to, to say that, that, um, that a program like DACA, which, uh, you know, has been ended since, since 2017, uh, has been, you know, no one new can, can, can get into DACA. Uh, that that would be leading to new waves of migration. And overall, unauthorized migration is is really dropped, um, with the exception of of those asylum seekers from Central America. So it's a a complicated topic, and many books have been written about it. Um, I think uh, I have a – you know, I'm curious – I don't know if if Jessica has thoughts about whether the the Homeland Security Department is going to be – uh, re, reworking this and trying again for a rescission of DACA in the, in the coming months. But, um, uh, you know, we're, I think we're at this um, sort of pivotal point in this country right now with um, this Black Lives Matter protests and, and this sort of big upsurge of mobilization for racial justice. And I think this decision on DACA is coming at this sort of definitional moment, I think, in terms of the country, in terms of how we're seeing, you know, who is included and who is marginalized. And and it's really, I think, to me, really interesting that it's happening in, a, in an election year, um, in the middle of a pandemic, and um, it's kind of an existential question about, about the future of the country. So I'm interested in I don't know if Dulce is still on the line, but also in her thoughts about what kind of organizing uh, we might see in, you know, in the coming weeks and months. Well, Taiki, we don't have Dulce on the line, but we do have Sarah Sousa, and uh, I think it's an appropriate question for her as well. Uh, Sarah Sousa is a DACA recipient. She's also president of the San Francisco Latino Democratic Club, and welcome, Sarah Sousa. Good to have you. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Glad to have you. Taiki was just asking about what kind of organizing is going to go on now. There probably, if DACA, if the decision had gone the other way, there would have been a lot of protests and probably 
uh, connection with the protests that are going on against racism. But what do you foresee here? Um, I foresee a movement for uh, justice uh, and Black Lives Matter, Black, Black immigrants who are in this country also marginalized and don't have a status. Uh, this is going to be about a movement for human rights. Uh, we're no longer accepting carve-outs. We're looking for systemic change. And we're organizing jointly with the black and brown community to ensure that we're holding the systems accountable, that we can actually see uh, some uh, a solution that's good for all of us, not just for a few of us. All right, and I want to bring a caller on here, Chris from Palo Alto joining us. Chris, welcome. Hi, um, I have a two-part question about the Supreme Court's decision. Um, one, what was the legal grounds on which they ruled that uh, Obama could not implement DACA in the first place? And then what mechanisms uh, are left open for uh, Trump to dismantle it? Can I go to you on this again, Professor Gulasekaram? Sure. Uh, on the first question, I, I think um, the, the premise of the question might be incorrect. The, the Supreme Court did not say that, uh, that, that right. the Obama program in 2012 was illegal. Um, I, I'm not, I don't think Ms. Vaughn was correct to state that that was even an implication in the, in the majority opinion. They expressed no opinion on whether the original program was illegal or legal. This is only about the rescinding of uh, of the program. Um, as far as what avenues uh, are, are available, at this point, DHS, if it wanted to, could uh, write a memoranda which accounts for the concerns that, uh, that plagued the, the memorandum that was just declared unlawful. That is to talk about the reliance of the several hundred thousands of people who have it, the reliance of their families on the jobs that they have, the universities like the University of California system, which enrolls several thousands of, of recipients, state uh, authorities, which gain taxes, 3.1 billion uh, in, in taxes last year from DACA recipients. And so all of that type of reliance has to be accounted for in, in the next memorandum. And the one other thing I wanna say though, as an implication of taking, a, of finding the rescission unlawful is that uh, DHS, at least until it issues a new memorandum, has to accept now new applications for DACA. And for the last two years, it's only been accepting renewals. Now it would also have to accept new applications as well. A couple of quick, uh, questions that I'm gonna to go to here. If you, uh, This is Todd who writes, uh, it seems like using a sloppy legal process based on hate was the only thing holding up a legal procedure. What is to stop the creation of a better legal argument or is this just by time? Deep, can you respond? Yes, you know, I think that the question um, is, is well taken. This is about process. And that is, th that is the sense in which the Supreme Court ruling is quite narrow. It's that the process used was, was unlawful. But I think that, that uh, underlies a very important point. That is process matters. Real reasons matters. And, and, and in that sense, we could take this as a piece with the census decision from last year. You, there is a level of minimum competence and minimum rationalities that agencies working for us in the government have to meet. The Trump administration agencies, both in the census case and here, have failed to meet that minimum level of competence. And so I think that's quite important for us to demand of our government officials when they act. I wonder if you could also respond to a question from Gene, who says, in most of the stories about this issue, it is mentioned that DACA recipients could be deported if Trump were able to go forward with canceling the program. But nothing I have seen or heard mentions whether the parents who brought them illegally and who obviously themselves came illegally would also be subject to deportation. Can you address this, please? Sure. All, all those groups, uh, the, the parents would be unlawfully present. They are vulnerable now. DACA provides uh, a temporary reprieve for people who fall within that program. But as soon as that program no longer exists, then everybody within that program becomes uh, a potential removal candidate. Uh, unlike what Ms. Vaughn was saying, the Trump administration has gone over, uh, has gone after that group of people, parents of DACA recipients, people who would be eligible for DACA. In fact, the uh, enforcement memoranda issued by President Trump and his administration soon after coming into office make clear that those groups are eligible for deportation and if encountered by ICE will be the subject of deportation. 
And again, we're talking about the Supreme Court decision to uphold DACA. And let me get another caller on Oscar. That's you. Thanks for waiting. Join us. Hi, my name is Oscar Lopez. I have I live in the Salinas Valley for 40 years. I'm in my 40s. I was brought here, you know, uh, illegally. My parents were illegal, and I'm very blessed to be uh, here legally now. And so are my parents. But what I what I what I wish I could see from the government is they could make a program. You know what? If you have an employer that will vouch for you and say, you know what, this person is a good employee, never gets into trouble, no, no domestic violence, no drug driving, anything like that. If you keep your record clean, why can't they offer you citizenship or or, or, or at least legal status? Obvious, it's very obvious that this country needs workers, illegal workers, legal workers. This country is built on the backs of immigrants. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go to Taiki Hendricks again on this. Uh, Taiki, what about path to citizenship here? Where are we on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm actually, is Oscar still on the line? I'm interested in knowing how he and his, his folks uh, became legal residents here. Um, is he still there? Yeah, Oscar? yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah, so my parents came over, yeah, like 40 years ago, and, and we went through a, actually like a church program. In, in Salinas, they had a church program that, that, that helped you, I believe it's the Braceros. My parents came here a long time ago, and, uh -huh. and, and that's how I got, that's Through how I got, you know. Six um, IRCA amnesty under Ronald uh, Reagan? You know, I'm not 100% sure, but that, that's how my parents came over, and then yeah, they applied. I'm, I'm curious because, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many complex factors, as we were saying earlier, in migration and including in unauthorized migration, uh, and our immigration laws don't really make a clear path to to come to this country legally uh, for folks who are not high-skilled immigrants like, um, yeah, folks with, I mean, an H-1B is actually a temporary visa, but it's a legal way for a, for a highly skilled immigrant to come. Um, but there are fewer ways uh, for people to become permanent residents who who have uh, lower skills but are, are contributing to the economy in, in different ways. And uh, so we do have this this big share of 10 or 11 million people who are unauthorized, and there isn't a clear way to, to become legal residents, even though um, these are folks who have been, I think, um, Two-thirds of, of undocumented immigrants now have lived in the U.S. for 10 years or more. Eighty percent of them have lived in the U.S. for, for at least five years. And uh, so sort of saying do it the right way, get legal, is, is more complicated than it looks or than it sounds. And uh, so um, DACA is not the permanent solution for, for DREAMers. Um, and as we've been talking about, you know, It'll take Congress to do something to um, make a way for unauthorized immigrants to uh, become permanent legal residents and have an option of becoming U.S. citizens, where there really isn't an avenue for that right now for, for most people. Now, there was even some talk about uh, if, if the decision had gone the other way, perhaps President Trump could have used this to do some dealing with Congress on immigration, which... Uh, that prompts me to bring Scott Schaefer into the conversation. Scott is senior editor of KQED's Politics and Government Desk. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Michael. Hi. Well, I'd love to know your reaction to this. Uh, let's talk about it politically, though. Uh, the Trump camp can't be terribly happy about this, but yet at the same time, the majority of Americans are probably behind it, so it might perhaps even help Trump. Well, I think there are different ways of looking at it. Uh, you know, on the one hand, Michael, it throws another log onto an unhelpful political fire that's already burning pretty brightly. Uh, I mean, this decision basically says, uh, Trump administration, you did this wrong. You didn't follow the rules. You didn't do it the right way. Um, and sort of uh, like the LGBT decision earlier this week, it's, it's somewhat similar because uh, they were. it's a conflict with the policies that uh, the administration has been putting forward on transgendered people in the military, rolling back 
uh, Obama policies uh, on health care, which they did just last week, and then the John Bolton book uh, coming out today saying uh, that the president doesn't really know anything about negotiating treaties. So I think not to mention, of course, the handling of the George Floyd protests. So I think it, in, in a general way, just kind of adds to the perception that the president is maybe in over his head a bit. Uh, on the other hand, it kind of saves Trump from himself and the policies of Stephen Miller, who is the architect of some of these uh, anti-immigrant policies. He, you know, he doesn't now have to actually implement the policy and deport dreamers. I don't know if he would have done that. Like you said a moment ago, he might have used it as a bargaining chip. But you know, even 70% of Republicans support the dreamers. Uh, so it's not a big vote getter for him in November uh, beyond his core base to be saying that uh, you know he wants to follow through on, on doing this in a second term. Uh, and in fact, this morning, uh, the president, as you can imagine, very active on Twitter, uh, saying, uh, first of all, do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me? That's a quote. And then saying he's going to release a new list of conservative justices that'll do the right thing. So, you know, this this was an Obama-era policy that he tried to erase and didn't. Uh, and, of course, Joe Biden was the other part of that administration. So uh, this will clearly be an issue in, in November. Well, the other big issue now is what can Congress do until November if there's a changing of the guard because Mitch McConnell has been holding up legislation? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of Republicans, if this had ever gone to the floor, uh, the DREAM Act, I think a lot of Republicans would have voted for it. And, uh, you know, for Mitch McConnell's own reasons uh, and certainly uh, lobbying from the president, he didn't want to see it go forward. Um and so I, I can't imagine that they will do this now and further undermine Trump. Uh, so it's probably something, you know, that we'll look to uh, in 2021 and beyond. And we'll bring a caller on, and that's you, Win. Good morning. Um, the Supreme Court ruling today is just a great victory for the DACA kids and the nation as a whole. But I think it also reinforces the glimmer of hope we had when the Chief Justice Roberts voted to keep the Obama uh, care in place, and it indeed looks like the Chief Justice is intent on keeping some semblance of balance in the court. So in this time of turmoil and trouble, it's such a joy to celebrate a wonderful gift for our country. Yeah, I wonder, thank you, Wynn. Uh, your thoughts on that, Scott? I brought this up earlier that perhaps Roberts is steering toward a middle course here. Well, I think more than, yes, that is certainly the practical effect of what he's doing. Uh, you know, I think he is in some ways taking up the mantle of uh, Justice O'Connor, you know, who was from politics. She had been a legislator, very much in tune with where the pulse of the country and the practical political and you know, sociological implications of decisions. Uh, you know, he, I think both the LGBT case earlier this week that he joined the majority decision and this one today and the Obamacare one, just looking at the practicality, are we really going to throw all these millions of people uh, off of health care? Are we going to really deport these young people who are by, you know, any re reasonable standard American? So I don't think it's a real ideological shift on the part of uh, John Roberts. I mean, uh, you know, there are many, many cases where he will rule with the conservative majority. Uh, but I do think that he is now taking the role of Anthony Kennedy very firmly in the middle. Uh, and any five to four decisions, uh, he's likely going to be, you know, on the, on the, in the majority. Sarah Sousa, I'd like to get your thoughts about where you'd like to see this go in terms of the Congress. Sarah Sousa, do we still have you with us? Uh, I, I thought we had Sarah with us. Uh, likelihood of where this is going to go with the Congress, Scott? Can you address that? Yeah, well, I mean, we talked can you about hear it. Me now? Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Now is. I can hear you. You're yeah. coming through loud I thought and we had clear. lost you there. Go ahead, go please. Ahead. Sarah? Well, keeps fading in and Hi. out here. Can you hear him? Can now you hear I me can now? hear you. Yeah, I hope we oh, can continue to hear you. Apologies. So um, I just, you know, I, I appreciate your question, um, but I just want to. Uh, correct some of the language that has been used. Um, I want for us to start thinking about uh, how we frame immigrants. Uh, no one is illegal uh, to not use that language. Uh, in terms of the Congress, uh, Speaker Pelosi has introduced H.R. 6, which is a DREAM Act, um, and has been voted on the House side. So now we're waiting for the, Cong for the Senate uh, to take a vote on H.R. 6. Um, and we're hoping that this will happen uh, sooner than later uh, so we can alleviate uh, 
what the situation that millions of immigrants are going through. Um, and also that we can actually celebrate a congressional victory. So I hope that we can continue fighting for this congressional action and get you know, a path to citizenship uh, for everyone. I myself, I grew up in San Francisco. Um, I'm an American in every way except status. Um, I want to continue working uh, and giving back to the community. Uh, and fighting for economic justice. I'm a human being, and I hope that you know the American people, uh, voters, will stand with us. It's about time that we work together for justice and to also dismantle uh, systemic racism that criminalize black and brown lives. Sarah Sousa again is a DACA recipient and president of the San Francisco Latino Democratic Club. A listener writes, uh, I screen DACA recipients paperwork. They have to reapply every two years at a cost of several hundred dollars and fill out three forms, two of which are largely duplicative. If they don't fill out every question perfectly, they risk getting denied. It's ridiculous. We need to grant citizenship to these young people. They work, often go to school, and are helping to support their families. And Debbie writes, we should celebrate our victories as we get them, but the long-term safety of DACA recipients and all immigrants will be in jeopardy unless we elect Democrats this year to the presidency and the Senate. Even then, we will have to hold them accountable. And here's a listener, and I'm going to go back to you on this, if I may, uh, Deep uh, Gulasekaram. Uh, this is a listener who says, can we stop, uh, excuse me, please speak to the parallels between this ruling and the Muslim ban. Is this the first set to DACA being overturned? I think that's a that's a great question. The, the parallel that I see and, and I saw as soon as I read the opinion was actually on a little piece of the opinion uh, that was an 8-1 decision with only Justice Sotomayor um, writing in this part and eight other justices uh, in, in the other, uh, taking the other position with Chief Justice Roberts. And that was that there is no uh, racial animus claim, a claim of racial discrimination that can go forward uh, with regards to DACA's rescission. And I think that part really resonates with Trump versus Hawaii, where again, Chief Justice Roberts in the majority rejected the claim that there was religious animus and religious discrimination at work in the creation of the travel ban. And, and that I think, again, emphasizes the, the procedural uh, uh, administrative grounds on which the DACA decision has been made and not a broader claim that the, the statements about Mexicans and the statements about uh, migration and, and animals and rapists coming across the border will be factored in into the Supreme Court thinking on immigration related issues. What about all that talk about chain migration, Deep? Yeah, you know, again, I, I think that I, I think that our fundamental, as Congress has set it out, our immigration system is built on family reunification. It is the fundamental building block of how our immigration system was built in the 1950s and in the 1960s. And so, to call something chain migration is to really indict what Congress has has laid as the basics of our immigration process. Um, and so we celebrate that. We celebrate the fact that people can reunite with their families because the thinking is that actually makes for a much more stable immigration system. It makes for much better contribution to our economies, and it's better for Americans as a whole. And here's Jennifer in Santa Rosa. Jennifer, join us. You're on the air. Hello. I'd just like to support what a previous caller said about how DACA, DACA recipients are taxpayers and contributors and active members of our society. And it's so important to counter the false claims made by anti-DACA anti speakers like the one that you had on previously that aren't based in fact and call, them, call it what it is. It, it's anti-immigrant. It's anti-family. It's anti um, a diverse and multicultural society. It has nothing to do with the claims that they're making. They pay their taxes, they get their education, they work hard. My husband is a grandchild of immigrants from both Mexico and Italy, and he's a hardworking doctor of 20 years in Sonoma County. And I'm a teacher that works with families that all they want to do is be in a just society and make it better. Jennifer, I thank you for those sentiments. Appreciate hearing from you. Let me go back to Scott Schaefer, who, again, is senior editor of KQD's Politics and Government Desk. And does uh, do Trump and uh, Stephen Miller have some cards to play here uh, in terms of immigration? Or what would they be? Yeah, I, 
I don't know if they have cards to play. I mean, the problem with the president is that his core base of support really supports him on these anti-immigration policies. And so even if the Senate were to somehow, which I don't think they will, but pass the DREAM Act or some version of the DREAM Act, uh, you know, unless it also included some pretty strict limitations on immigration, legal immigrations, as well as, well as money for the wall, uh, I don't think he would sign it. So I, I just don't think that uh, the Democrats in the House are going to deliver him any kind of an election year victory on this issue. Um, so I, I just don't know what really what cards he has to play. He's, he seems to be busy just criticizing the Supreme Court and uh, the justices who voted for this. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't see it. Does this diminish the Federalist Society's influence in Washington and on Trump? <laughs> I don't I mean, I hardly. I mean, they, right you know, they have a majority of the, of the justices uh, were recommended by them. And uh, many, many of uh, the lower court judges that were appointed and confirmed by the Senate uh, have also come from those lists. So, uh, no, I don't think it does. Got seconds left, Scott, but I also want to give you a question from Ronald, who it sort of dovetails with what you were saying earlier. He says, I'm curious how we can make Senator Mitch McConnell bring bills to a vote. Right now, it seems the next step is to bring the DREAM Act to a vote. How can we as voters from different states make Majority Leader Mitch McConnell bring this and many other bills to a vote? Yeah, well, that from different states part kind of uh, my answer is if you're in Kentucky, you have an <laughs> option and you should vote for his opponent if that's what you want to do. I don't think he's pretty impervious to outside pressure. I mean, you know, you think of all the all the issues, gun control after Sandy Hook, so many things that just never got out of the Senate. Uh, I don't think this is one where he's going to cave, especially, you know, if you're calling, you know, from a 415 area code uh, to his office in, in Washington. Well, I want to uh, say this is a, a pretty uh, momentous decision, and I thank all of those who participated in the discussion this morning. Thank you, Scott Schaefer. And you're welcome. Thank you, Sarah Sousa, and good to have you with us. Sarah Sousa is a DACA thank recipient. You. President of San Francisco Latino Democratic Club. And thanks uh, to you, Professor Gulasekaram, uh, uh, who is Professor of Law at Santa Clara University. Deep, good to have you with us. Thank you. Good to have you on again. And thank you, Taiki Hendricks. Always good to have you aboard as well. Thank you, Michael. Taiki Hendricks is senior editor covering immigration for KQED. We're here with you Monday through Friday. And uh, I want to tell you who's behind the scenes here as far as Forum is concerned. Uh, our producers are Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prail, and Blanca Torres. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Interns are Michael King and Jameson Weiss. Executive editors Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.